So thank you for having me here. It's a delight to be here again. I've been thinking about a lot of different things to talk about, and I'm not sure where everything will go, but I think by the end we should have three major passages from Ibn Arabi looked at. If we can accomplish that, then we've done what I'd like to see being done. I've always felt a, a real response, great responsibility for talking about Islam for Muslims, especially fundamentalists and proto-fundamentalists. So the only talking I've really done about Islam has been to those groups, and especially uh, either in this country as immigrants or in, in other countries really throughout the world. People, Muslims, especially young ones who are trying to figure out you know, what to do about their Islam, what does it mean in the modern world, and so on. The only other audience I've ever addressed are the lovers, so they're just the two categories. And so I thought it might be good to mention a little bit about, I feel that Islam and the Living Law, that that book sort of discharged my responsibility to that group of people, because one of the things I kept seeing was people thinking that in order to get this group of fundamentalists or proto-fundamentalist people to see you know, the love and the true things, that you have to step back from the Arabic text. You have to be more liberal and less literal. What I found when I rediscovered Ibn Arabi is that the more literal you get, the more that's when you see what really is there. You really see all of the things that Ibn Arabi accomplishes, he accomplishes because he shows what the Quran really says in the direct way, the way rain comes down. And what we have right now, we have so much acid rain that we don't get that purity. Then we have so much water coming from wells that have minerals in them that we don't really know what the Quran says. Of all of the stories, and I'm kind of a late person to hear about the stories about Ibn Arabi, the most important story I've ever heard and I keep coming back to is the group was saying we've got to censor Ibn Arabi and burn his books. And then there's someone hollered and said, well, shouldn't we cut out the Quranic passages first and then burn the books? And then the disciples said, you know, if we, if we cut out the Quran from Ibn Arabi, it won't be Ibn Arabi anymore. So that probably got them killed afterwards. But, uh, but the, the, I felt that by working with Ibn Arabi and Fiqh, which would seem to be the most boring Islamic jurisprudence, such a boring subject and so literal and all that, but that's really the basis of the closer you get to the text, the more it opens up. The basis of anything that's universal has to be ambiguous because it has to be able to meet more than one situation. Otherwise, it's a dull text that has no validity. So by going into the text, I kept seeing more and more ambiguity and more and more expanse and more and more vitality. And I realized that the answer for the people who are Proto are, are trying to, are coming into a, a very rigid view of Islam is to have them become more literal and to dive more into the Islamic law part of it in order to open up their hearts at some time. There may be a chance for me to come to Indonesia and Pakistan when the, it's possible to go there and give some more lectures. And I really don't know how I'd approach that because the first thing I'll say is don't shoot me. And then the second thing I'd say, <laughs> the second thing I'd say, I'm not quite sure what it would be. Because it seems that Islamic ideology seems to sometime along the way has, has died out. I was over at a friend's place and he was the person that we used to go to the dars together in Abiquiu. He's a real strong person for helping me uh, and teaching me the, the Arabic way of language. He was giving me a book, I think it was Pirate Utopias or something. You know, just you know, we're reading Pirate Utopias and we really have left the fold. And he was saying, what happened to Islamic ideology? You know, it used to be, you know, I went to a university where we did nothing but talk about 
what Islam in the modern world, Islamization of knowledge and so on, what that means. And we created, you know, 10 departments to look at just at that. Governments uh, used to talk a lot about Islam. You really don't see that same kind of fervor for Islamic ideology that there was 10 years ago. I thought maybe we've gotten to the end of history, like Fukuyama said. For a lot of Muslims, there is kind of an end of history. There isn't a feeling anymore that it's possible to uh, evolve an Islamization that's going to be suitable in the modern world or the postmodern world. So things have changed a lot, and things have changed, of course, very recently. But I have a feeling if people think about late 1999, I think that's the time there's a massive shift. Scatman John died that month, and Patana Khan died, and maybe that's somewhere around there. There's something very different has happened. This question of ideology and Islamic law, for me, it's been, I had let it go after the Green Book, after publishing that. I just sort of thought, okay, I'm done. I can finish with that. I, you know, it might, maybe there's still aspects of it that need to be done. The reason that there is an Islamic law for having societies have ways to interact with each other and it's kind of neat to go back to look at sort of very generalist views, like uh, Jared Diamond wrote that Guns, Germs, and Steel. You might, that's kind of a popular book. It was really fun to read that one. And he talks about these bands of people. So he said there's bands, there's tribes, there's chiefdoms, and then there's states. And bands of people are you know, people of 20, 30, 40 people who live together. And once a year, they meet in order to exchange uh, women for wives. And so what they've got then is a band of 20, 30 people who never see anybody else except their family. And he says that when these guys meet every year in New Guinea and, and different places, he says they're always that someone gets murdered because the minute you see someone who's not related to you, you just and you, you hit them and then you kill them and then they try to kill you. And, and then you find that, that someone murdered my father last time we were here. And so that person finds a person who murdered him and then is out there and they start fighting. To us, a few dozen people constitute a small ordinary gathering. But to these people, the Defayu, it was a rare, frightening event. Murderers suddenly found themselves face to face with their victims' relatives. For example, one Fayu man spotted the man who killed his father. The son raised his axe and rushed at the murderer, but was wrestled to the ground by friends. Then the murderer came at the prostate son with an axe and was also wrestled down. Both men were held screaming in rage until they seemed sufficiently exhausted to be released. Other men periodically shouted insults at each other, shook with anger and frustration, and pounded the ground with their axes. The tension continued for several days of gathering. We have to kind of remember that there is a state, an original condition that we have long forgotten. Most of us come from, have long forgotten it for centuries and centuries. But we have to remember that in, in the history of, of humankind, that even only a few hundred years ago, very few parts of the earth were covered by people who had states or anything like states. You could even argue that there has never been a really a state until only a few hundred years ago. We have to kind of remember that. It's why we have laws. That these are ways that we can have our superego be stronger than our id, that we can have ways of not killing someone who's not related to us, and ways of interacting in thousands of thousands of ways in a ways that are safe and lead to other kinds of things being able to be possible in society. If you really get at that level, that's what the fiqh, the Islamic laws, is also trying to do, is find a way to make adab, the way to interact with other people, to make that a way that people can learn. So you can learn ways of interacting with other people. And like that great one in, that's in the introduction, Journey to the Lord of Power, that you know, be a guardian of the dogs. That's our job, is to guard our dogs, our nafs. 
and keep them from hurting other people. And that, that's, that's really where we need to be. For me, that's always why that this group of people needs to be addressed. It's a way of saying that, within, that this is a great tradition which will allow us to find ways of making adab in daily life. That's why it's a tradition that we want to partake in. So one of the things that comes out of that is finding ways of understanding how to interact and then finding ways of making kinship with people who are not our kin. And that's that kind of transference. Of course, if you even go back to just in the recent Islamic history, so in Mecca and Medina, this is taking the people of Medina and saying, because of your relationship to the Prophet, you will become the family ties of Mecca, will be the Medina people. And they had no physical tie, they had no blood tie, and they even had no sort of in there from the beginning with Islam. They had only one thing, sincerity to the new religion. And so that sincerity, then tr- you transferred all of your loyalty and care and responsibility to the people of sincerity. It's a powerful transference, and it's one that I've always felt that if we can move that way and go into that direction and understand that these, are, these laws are transference things, ways of things that are higher rather than things that are lower, things that are, are exalted rather than things that are debased, and be moving that way through law, that that would be something valuable that could come out of it. In recently, and especially in, in the last few months, it feels that the predominant hal, or the condition of today, is not so much that we all are in a shared area and trying to find out ways that, say, Islamic law would be ways of, of helping us transfer good things into a society. It seem to be in a hall that's quite different, in a condition that's quite different. And it's the one that focused on, this in Surah Al-Baqarah, the first, the first few verses after that special, uh, that special group of verses about the sealing of the hearts. And right after that, you have the verses about, and among people there are those who say, we believe in Allah and the last day. But they aren't believers. They try to trick Allah and the ones who believe, but they trick only themselves and realize it not. And then in their hearts is a sickness, and Allah increases in them sickness. To them is a terrible chastisement for their lies. When they are told, don't do facade, don't do bad things on the earth, don't do ruinous things on the earth, they say, we are the ones making things right. Oh no, they are the doers of facade, of the ruinous things, but they realize it not. When they are told, believe like the people believe, they say, shall we believe like fools believe? Oh no, they are the fools, but they know it not. And when they meet the ones who believe, they say, we believe. And when they are secluded with their shayateen, they sort of the devilish companions, they say, we are with you. We were just mustasiun, we were just mocking them. Those verses just seem to be, for me, the, a predominant condition that we have now because instead of a shared reality which we talk about incrementally or moving out and say we have this common vocabulary because I think typically we had the common v- vocabulary of Arabic and that was the, the ancient or the classical Arabic, the one that stopped the death of the prophet, that's when Arabic stopped, that Arabic, the one that was before him and up to his death. That was an Arabic that was, they, they understood the abstraction ladder, and they knew that when you wanted to talk about something, you can't abstract it, you have to point to it, you have to say, that's what I mean, over there. When they said, well, what does heart mean? It says, Quran talks about the heart, what does it mean? Well, they say, well, there's the thump thump, and then there's the heart that understands. So we could say, oh, okay, so there's something that goes thump thump, and there's something that understands things. So okay, now I know what you mean by heart. So you had a common language and a common vocabulary. 
And Islamic legal discourse depended on that common language. If you didn't have Arabic, you didn't have Islamic law. The, the precondition for Islamic legal activity is the knowledge of that Arabic language, that, that original Arabic language, because that one pointed to things. Someone says, what, how far do I have to wash? Up to here, up to here, up to here. And you'd have, you'd have answers for all of that through the Arabic language. Without that, it would have no grounding. And so, therefore, that was always the precondition. But it seems to me that, we're, that the predominant hal right now is not of arguing about how far up the elbow one washes. It seems to be something like the Surah Al-Baqarah, this beginning verses talk about. People said, you tell them, don't do fasad, don't do ruinous things on this earth. And they say, we're doing the right things. We're making things right. You guys are doing the facade things. And then when they say, why can't you just believe like everyone else believes? Like, you know, there's a bunch of people who say, we're believers. Why can't you just do what they do? And that's back to Islamic law where you point to something. If they say, how shall we believe? You point to these guys over there. They all, they're all believers and they all believe a certain way. Why can't you be like them? And so their answer from the Quran is, shall we believe like the fools believe? You know, they're opposite of what we want to be or what we are. So instead of incremental, we seem to have opposites. We're now in the middle of discourse which isn't shared at all. It's, it's disjointed. And you have someone saying it's blue and then someone else saying it's not blue with equal convictions and sincerity and so on. There are three passages uh, that Ibn Arabi puts forth that for me started moving towards answering some of those kinds of questions about what to do in a disjointed discourse or a, a discourse that has no common ground. As you know, the problem and the beauty of Ibn Arabi is that you can start here and get everything and you can start here and also get everything, but you also sometimes have to back up and get a running start before you get to here. So we have to back up a little bit. And he's actually, his tafsir, his commentary on those three verses. So it's right here, but he's, he has backed up a bit to get into it. I think when I, if I go like this, that means a Quranic statement so that we can sort of work that together. When I just lift the hands up somehow, that's, I'm quoting. So among the people, there are those who say we believe in Allah and the last day, which then means that they should be considered Muslims. But, but they are not the believers. They are not believers. They don't have faith. And they're trying to trick Allah and those who believe. But they're tricking no one but themselves. They just don't understand that. In their hearts, there's a sickness, and Allah increases that sickness, and they have a terrible chastisement for what they have been putting forth as lies. Now, the first thing that my original or my sort of usual audience needs, what I would tell them is that that's all very fine, but don't you go start pointing your finger at different people because this is Allah speaking unless you have another Quran, and then they'll all, oh, they'll then you shouldn't be going around pointing fingers because this is, you have the benefit of revelation when you're reading Quran, but when you're reading what happened last week or last month or last year, we're not in the same, quite in the same situation. So that's the beauty of conservative Islamic law is that it says we can't point fingers because we don't have that direct line. And then that's why the Sufis all have to have a very strong grounding because they're saying that, aha, there is a direct line, but we're not going to step over any of the lines that you draw on the floor. So that's the important part. Ibn Arabi starts his tafsir, his commentary of that saying that in the beginning Allah created the creation and he brought out in a language, he brought out the fact of lordship and said, Alastu bi rabikum, am I not your lord? 
the address was of utter clarity. And they said, Bala, which means no, but I mean, in English we would say, yes, indeed you are. Ibn Arabi says it was like an echo because he said, am I not your Lord? Yes, you are. So alastu, it's very easy when someone says, uh, aren't I this? To say, yes, you are. So it wasn't something like saying, what am I? Which would have been like a multiple choice situation. You'd have to have a lot of answers. But this was an easy one. Isn't two plus two equal four? And then you'd say, yeah, two plus two equals four. So he said it's like an echo. It's the utmost clarity. And it was, in fact, he said, prompted. It was even that it was prompting and sparing people that they would, might make a mistake in the answer. And that this is a witness of rahmah. This is a mercy that it was even prompted. And even though it was prompted, even though Allah knows that among those people saying yes indeed, there are going to be people who associate partners with him. So full well knowing that, they are prompted to go ahead and say the right thing at least this once. Uh, Ibn Arabi says that after that moment, that very shining, clear moment, there is, it, it becomes a night, a spiritual night. Everyone is waiting for the fajr, waiting for the dawn to, uh, to arise. And while they're waiting, they're looking around and seeing all these forms that are very dim and dull forms. And they can't quite make out the features and things come out of the darkness and then go back in the darkness and come out and go back in the darkness. And this happens until the beginning of the dawn. During this night time, the intellect is trying to grasp something that it can stick onto and trying to understand something. And that this intellect starts trying to grasp one thing but realizes that it has coarse senses. It's, it can't hold very well, can't grasp very well. So it tries to get closer to this dark curtain and starts getting closer and closer. And then when it gets towards the, the, the curtain, it realizes that there's some great mystery there. There's some great truth there, but that that truth is uh, inaccessible to itself. And so it just stays there and says, OK, there's a truth behind that curtain, which is inaccessible to me. And then from that curtain, they hear about a messenger who is going to come, and that messenger will give them duties and thing, responsibilities that they are going to be responsible for. And so they say, okay, that messenger is going to come and give duties from this behind this curtain that we can't see ourselves, but we know that we have to accept. So everyone is in that situation, and they are consenting to that situation. And no one is rejecting this first statement, the statement, la, 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 there is no God but God. No one is rejecting that because, in fact, no one rejects that there must have been a creator. What they reject to is the next stage, and that is taking the witness of someone else, namely a messenger, taking that person's witness over and above the witness of yourself. And that point in that spiritual night, there becomes a split. And the split are the people who deny that there is a message that they must accept which isn't their own witnessing. So there are two kinds of people who do that. There's one group who look at the outward forms, these, these indistinct outward forms, and say, there's no one of them better than another of them. So why should I accept someone saying, you need to do this and you need to do that? They all look the same to me. So that's the whatever group of people. And then the second group of people who look with their intellect, and they look at that and they say, but there's more than one way of doing something. And that one thing you told me to do, I could do it a second way with equal results. And so they reject as well. So that's the, the groups who are rejecting that they should take the evidence of someone else. 
from those two groups, a messenger, you know, a lot in the spiritual night is then ruminating and saying, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll send uh, that messenger with a sword. And then the sword will uh, solve some of these problems. And the sword will strike into their hearts fear of death. By this fear of death, they will then start choosing a little bit better than they have been doing before. So some who say, I, I don't want to choose and I won't choose. They're the, the kafir. And the kafir, the people who cover up. And you remember we talked a little earlier about the, the Surat al-Baqarah, the ones who cover up because Allah has made them cover up. It says Allah, to some of the people that he loves the most, he says he covers up their hearts so that they won't hear anyone else's speech, even his own messenger's speech. And so they cover up this heart. So it's only, that one's only for me. And of course, that's a very painful position to be in. If Allah says, this one's only for me, he can't hear other, even messengers and prophets and friends, the awliya, telling him what to do. He can only hear directly from me. So there are some of the, some of the awliya are disguised in that same situation. And then there are also some who says, they continue to say, even you're, you're threatening me with the sword, but I will continue to look for things, to witness. I want to see for myself. These are the alam billahi, the sort of the knowledgeable people who know through Allah. And they're saying, okay, the sword has made me scared. I know I have to choose, but I still want to keep looking. And so they're, they're alam billah. And then there are some who say, I'm going to just stay strongly with my perspective. Understand that I can look at it this way or I can look at it that way. And they're the arif billah, the Gnostics in Allah. And then there's others who say, well, I can't see for myself but I'll take the dogma, I'll take doctrine. So I'll follow the belief system. And they're the, the common people. They're the ones who say, I'll follow the belief system. And then there are some who are afraid of the sword and say that, yes, I will accept that, but they don't believe it. They don't take the belief system as well. These are the ones that Allah says, and among the people there are those who say, we believe in Allah on the last day, outwardly. But they are not believers inwardly. And they try to cheat Allah because they think that he will be ignorant of the fact that although they are following all the rules, they are not believing in any of them. That's why they don't believe. And in their hearts is a sickness. That sickness is a doubt of what, now in the spiritual darkness, Allah is speaking. That's a doubt from what we sent to them from my messenger. Fazaduhum Allah, and that Allah will increase in them the sickness, the doubt, and the hijab, the covering, that they can't see anything anymore. And they had that terrible chastisement on the last day. And they are, until now, up to now, they are the ones who are continuing to maintain their lies about what we told them is the truth. They won't have anything from the destiny tablet that will go before them and argue their case. So now Ibn Arabi is ready to talk about the hypocrite, that, where that comes from. And that is, and when it is said to them, don't be ruinous on the earth, they said, we are the ones who are putting things right. Oh no, they are the ones who are ruinous on the earth, but they don't realize it. Okay, now this is, I've been sitting with this passage for a long time, so... It's, and I still haven't got to the, and it's a, it's a wild one. When the universe was finished in eight, someone has to tell me what that is. When it's finished in eight, there stood out on the field of, this is probably the field where, yes, we accept this. 
so this is a field of good fortune because everyone said, Allah stubi rabbikum, am I not your Lord? And they answered yes. There arose a horseman with an allegation. There was not in the army of, among the people there are those who say we believe, anyone who went out and opposed him. So this horseman uh, dominated all of them. They started inclining to him and they started believing in him inwardly, in his deen, in his religion. There came a time when they were then asked to make a attestation or else they would be killed. So they attested verbally. That's when there came to them a terrible chastisement in this world and the next. And when it is said to them, don't do facade on the earth, don't be ruinous on the earth, the earth of these blurry forms, they said from their blurry minds, we are the ones putting things right. And then Allah says, no, they're the ones who are being ruinous according to us and according to them, even them, because they did not partake in those blurry forms as they had wanted to. If I understand that correctly, he's saying they will admit to themselves that they must be in the wrong because the blurry forms that they wanted to take as truth were not enjoyed by them. They did not enjoy them and get everything out of those blurry forms because they weren't reality. They were creation, but not the creator. So they did not get what they wanted to out of them. But they didn't realize it. They didn't realize things are one, that they all go back to the same. And therefore the things are one. And they didn't realize that. They took the things to be yes or no instead of the things all being one. Had they realized, they would have believed and not covered that up. That's the first part of the, that, the hypocrite, what, what that all means. And then the second part is, and when it is said to them, believe like the people believe. They say, shall we believe like the foolish people believe? Oh no, they, they are the ones who are the foolish ones, but they don't know it. So the commentary on that is, they don't know it because when they join the organization of the others, when they join those blurry figures and say that's the truth, then they're given the, the announcement that they have reached true witness, that they are the shuhada, they are the martyrs, they have found what really is there. And so because of that, they said, they hear that they have been called, they say, you are now the people who witness the truth. So when they hear that in their ears, and then they hear someone say, why don't you believe like the people believe, the way the Quran says, they are covered from that. They can't see the original covenant of, am I not your Lord? And they said, yes. They only see the covenants that they made themselves through their sensory faculties. That has made them deaf and blind in their eyes and put the veil of night over their ignorances. They say, shall we believe like the fools believe? So that's the first kind of answer that Ibn Arabi gives for this. Why do people think that they're doing the right thing or say they're doing the right thing and then there's such a disconnect between what's happening and what they're saying? The next part that I want to look at is more about that idea of facade. Why do you do ruinous things on the earth? Ibn Arabi gives some answers about why that happens. This is the one Ibn Arabi is talking about. Where shall the person giving the prayer for the dead person? 
So the person giving the prayer is leading a prayer for a corpse. The dead person is right in there, it's been washed and wrapped up in the coffin. Coffin is where we get coffin, I guess. Coffin is the shroud. So wrapped up and washed and in front of the people. And then this person stands here and all the congregation is standing in the back. So the question is where this person who's leading that prayer should stand. And Ibn Arabi says there is a disagreement about where the imam should stand before the janazah, before the, the, the dead person in the dead person's prayer. A group, say, uh, should stand in its middle, right in the middle. So the corpse is here, you stand at the, at the waist, whether it's a male or a female. And there's a group that says uh, he should stand for a man by the head and for the woman by her waist. And then there are those who say that should stand next to the southern, which here's going to be the chest, so the, the chest area. And there's a group that says he should stand wherever he wants to stand, and there's no boundary on that. And Ibn Arabi says, and I argue for that position. But he also argues for another position, but we'll see. He says, what is the inward metaphor for this situation about where that person should stand? And the way he answers the question about how the inward truth about where you should stand, he says that humankind is called to account, is responsible from head to toe, and everything in between has been called to account. There are things he has been commanded, all our parts have been commanded, they have all been commanded, with not seeing what is not lawful to see, for not hearing what is not lawful to hear, and for not going to the places that the feet, it's not lawful for the feet to go to, and so on and so forth through every part of the body. It has been addressed to do something and is going to be accountable for that from the hands, stomach, genitals, and the heart. When the person who's leading the prayer decides to stand next to the heart, the person has in effect, in effect covered the entire faculty, the entire range of faculties. So standing before his heart at the chest is the most appropriate thing to do because the heart is like the executive of all of the body's faculties doing good or doing bad. So if something's doing bad, it's, you can always blame the boss and the boss then is the heart. And if something's going good, you can praise the boss and that's the heart as well. So that place, that heart, is the best place for the person to stand who is giving intercession for the dead person. By interceding, you go between that dead person and Allah. You, you intercede in between and you start asking for intercession. And so since all of the faculties are combined in the heart, therefore it's best to stand next to the heart. And Ibn Arabi continues and said, uh, Rasulullah said, or used to say, that in the body there is a piece of meat. If it is healthy, then the entire body is healthy. And if it is ruinous, then the entire body becomes ruinous. It is nothing but the qalb, the heart. And likewise, if the interceder stands before the heart, then it's, it's as if he's standing before the entire body's faculties. When the revelation refers to a piece of meat in the chest, which is, which is surrounded by the chest, then it's clear that what is meant by the heart is not the subtle 
uh, energy, nor is it the intellect which understands. Rather, it is made extremely clear here that what is meant is this thing that is in the chest. And it removes any kind of doubt about that. Allah also says, in that there is a remembrance for the one who has a heart. And also said, let those who are of the kernel, let them understand. Likewise, they have been blinded in their hearts, which are in their chests. So those three verses, Ibn Arabi says that they have made the utmost clarity that what is being referred to is this piece of meat and not um, the intellect or the subtle energy. The revelation is referring to doing well for others and for being ruinous when it is mentioning this uh, piece of meat that happens in, that is a thing that happens in the body. When sickness happens or health happens or death, the reference is to that thing that's in the, in the chest the heart which is this piece of meat is the place for the animal spirit the animal spirit is configured across the entire body and it nourishes the entire body so when the breath leaves from the innermost cavern of the heart and produces blood and that blood then is given to the liver when that blood is healthy then the breath from the innermost cavern is healthy then the entire body is healthy and vice versa. And this is a warning from the revelation, the lawgiver to us about what this situation is. So we're talking about the actual animal spirit or this uh, elemental animal spirit that produces sickness, health and death. So when the lawgiver, when the revelation is giving a reference to being ruinous, it is talking about the ruining of the tools, of the faculty. Giving health to is also the health of these faculties when the heart is healthy. The only mode that human beings are addressed on is they are addressed if their faculties are healthy. And if their faculties support them, then they must do healthy good things and they must protect and be concerned and pay attention to those things because their hearts are good and this vice versa when they are bad and that happens only from the heart this is the total discourse the prophet to us the total discourse is when the heart is healthy it makes healthy faculties and those healthy faculties are required to support good things and protect good things it's clear that the prophet meant by heart not the intellect here or the subtle energies but that thing which is inside the chest that lump and that piece of meat inside the chest and that leaves us all doubt so that we can no longer when we hear this word qalb in this context we can no longer even think about saying that that means intellect or that means subtle energy so Allah says that what has become blind are the hearts which are in their chest when something is ruinous and becomes blind from seeing what is necessary it's because of the heart if the eye of insight has become bad has ruined then that's because of the eye if the eye is ruinous that's because of the faculty which is producing for the eye the locus and if the locus that's producing for the eye becomes bad then that's because the locus that it comes from which is the heart 
the animal spirit has become bad and the animal spirit resides in the heart. So, he said, let the person giving the prayer stand by the chest of the corpse uh, during the prayer over him, and that is the best thing, because inside the person's heart, that is where the origin of healthfulness and the origin of ruinous comes from. So we're looking at a very much at the physicality of why things are the way they are. So I had gone from this uh, shared common discourse, sort of intellectual work that can take place there, all the way into where asking questions about animal spirit, about the original vitality, and about the heart. So asking questions about that kind of area led me to the question of relinquishing the things of the world. Ibn Arabi talks about that in this next section here. So among the heads of the people of leaving things behind is Ibrahim ibn Adham. His story is famous, and some of my uncles were among these heads of these great relinquishers. He was a king of the city of Tilimsan called Yahya ibn Burdan, He was in that time a man, a great jurist and a great worshiper of Allah, unmatched in his time. One of the people of Tunis, Abdullah, uh, Abu Abdullah of Tunisi, in that place, he was standing outside the city of Tilimsan. He has a mosque that he used to worship there, and his tomb is there. It's very famous. People still visit it. He was saying that he was walking from Tilimsan and he was between Aqadir, so Agadir, and a middle city when he met one of my uncles, Yahya ibn Yuhan, the king of the city. And around him he had his whole, this king had all his entourage, all the slaves and cattle and whatever. And it was said to him, this is Abdul, Abdullah Tunisi, he is the great worshiper of his time. He held the reins of the horse, and the king gave salam to the sheikh, and he returned the salam. At that time, the king was wearing some very bright and prideful clothing. And he said, Ya sheikh, O oh sheikh, these clothes that I am right now wearing, is it allowed for me to do the salat when I'm wearing them? And the sheikh started laughing, and the king said, Why are you laughing? And he said, From the feebleness of your intellect and the ignorance of yourself and your condition. You look to me like nothing but a dog who rolls around in the waste of corpses and the pus, and you eat them, and that dog's eating that. And when the dog wants to pee, it lifts its leg up so that the pee doesn't strike its leg. You are a vessel filled with the haram, and you ask me about clothing while your slaves are all oppressed under your yoke. And of course, so then the king cries and gets down off of his horse and leaves his kingdom and attaches himself to service to the sheikh, uh, clings to the sheikh for three days. Then the sheikh says, O king, you have finished your three days as a guest. So it's time to get out. <laughs> no, either get out or get the firewood. So get up and get the firewood. So he decided to get the firewood and he put it on his head and went through the markets. And all the people in the market saw him and started crying. And he took Bea with the sheikh and he gave away his monies and donated the rest of it. He never left that country until the day he passed away. He was buried just next to or outside of the tomb of the sheikh. 
when people go to the sheikh's tomb asking for things and beseeching him on their behalf, they say the request of the dua should be for Yahya ibn Yughran because he is the king who uh, had it all and left it. Had I been tested that way, it's likely that I would not have done like the king had done and given everything away. So, Ibn Arabi concludes, these are the Zuhad people, the people of, of leaving off. They're the ones who prefer Haq over creation. They prefer the Allah over the creation and over themselves. And everything that Allah makes happen for them is pleasing. They are affectionate to everything that happens. They establish and support what happens and they uh, accept whatever happens to them. There is nothing that Allah puts out that they try to turn away from. They have given up the few desiring the much. And no one in that station leaves Zuhud except he leaves to another station, but not because of Zuhud, because of giving up. And if they leave, it's because they had to give it up for another reason, to get to another station. The name Zuhud is given to them because they give benefit to the people by giving up everything that is other than Allah from this world and from the next. Like Abu Yazid, who was asked about his Zuhud, and he said, Zuhud is nothing to me. It has no power over me. I've only been a Zuhud person for three days. The first day, I gave up everything of the world. The second day, I gave up everything of the next world. And the third day, I gave up everything but Allah. In that station, a call came out to him from above saying, what do you want? And he said, I want not to want. I am the one who is wanted and you are the one who is wanting. And among them are the men of the water. They are found in the depth of the seas and of the rivers. And no one knows them except uh, there's no one who knows them. It was reported to me by Abu Badr al-Tamashiki, and he was a truthful man, weighty in responsibility, knowledgeable about what he transmitted, paid attention to what he transmitted, and preserved whatever he transmitted. It was given from Sheikh Abu Saud ibn Shibli, who was the imam of his time in the way, and he said, I was by the shores of Dijlat al-Baghdad, so the Tigris River, Suddenly there occurred in myself a thought whether Allah has creatures, has worshippers who worship him in the water. And then he said, my thought had not yet even passed, but that there appeared from the river a split open and a man came out. And the man gave salam to me and I to him. And he said, yes, Allah does have men who worship Allah in the water. And I am one of them. I am a man from Tikrita. I left that place because after so and so many days, there will occur there such and such a thing. He mentioned the thing that would occur there. And then he disappeared into the water. When those 15 days had passed, the thing that he mentioned took place in the same form that he mentioned it. That man mentioned it to Abu Saud. He told me what that matter was. Alhamdulillah. So you'll just kind of have to sit with that. I sat for a while and lots of things came, so otherwise. Okay. Thank you.